Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How are you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to Tech Radio for 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast, bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. Unfortunately, I am afflicted with summer cold this week for some reason, so my uh, my good friend Niall Kitson is going to do most of the talking today. But I kind of <laughs> went... That's what he normally does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let's. I did, this is the week that I think I'll get a egalitarian just to just to torment you. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, tell me. Uh, there was a couple of bits uh, in the news over the last week or two that we're just kind of really catching up on. Uh, mm. it, it is summer and things are a bit slow anyway. Uh, but with the national broadband plan, as we say on the north side, air get lost. Ah, yeah. I mean, this was a publicity stunt. Is that is? Would you agree with me on that? Um, I mean, Air were long out of the tendering process. They they withdrew. They took all the low hanging fruit. Um, but if you remember the bare stats, I mean, this thing was meant to benefit five hundred and forty thousand premises. Um, things were going on, going on, going on. Uh, Air just went. Okay, well, 300,000 of these are likely to be profitable. Let's just swoop in and take them, um, build out our network and say, look, here you go. Uh, now, unfortunately, they, they set a target of 330,000 premises. It was initially 300,000, but they, they added another 30,000. They got a bit cocky and they set a hard target of 300,000 by June and they missed that. So they're not going, going great guns. So maybe this is an interesting time for them to have issued a statement like this just to deflect from their own, I, I don't know, shortcoming, I guess. Um, I mean, we talked about it last week and we were very much, this is never going to fly. They want broadband on their own terms. Um, and you know, the tendering documents were absolutely massive. Like, I mean, there were 1,500 pages. According to AIR themselves, they needed a special box just to deliver it. So uh, the the terms were so onerous that for a company to turn around and basically say, by the way, we can do this on the cheap, it's, it's looking for trouble. And some of the things that they shaved off from their initial promise were kind of interesting. They, they were looking at things that... The implication was the market will look after these anyway, which is sort of, you know, the ghost estates, the um, uh, premises that would be perhaps taken in by new 5G technologies from Imagine that, that are setting up their 5G network, which you say they won't uh, or have said they won't in the past. And uh, yeah, I'm filing it under publicity stunt. I think the government, uh, Leo uh, Varadkar, our beloved Taoiseach, um, said, I'm all ears, uh, and very quickly wasn't. So, <laughs> well, that, that's because somebody from the Department of Communications tapped him on the shoulder and went, uh, Leo, <laughs> they're making this up. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, what's happened here is somebody's gone to marketing college and they've uh, done a case study on Donald Trump. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, they, there is. I mean, considering what's going on with the Children's Hospital and the official version now mm. is that an awful lot of the, um, uh, suppliers and vendors were, mm. were basically lowballed. 
the government and said it'll cost X, it's actually costing Y. Mm. Uh, and of course, because of the boom in the construction sector now, it's actually costing Z. So the, the actual cost of delivering the project is massively inflated compared to when the, the tenders were originally submitted. I'm not so, sure uh, if I see the uh, arguments that you're making. You could be right, but I think you are equally could be wrong. Because I don't see the benefit in air making that up. Okay. Where is the benefit for them? Do you know what I mean? Like, if they said that and then it turned out to be, you know, the government said no and loads of people were flocking into them as new customers, you could understand. Mm. Or maybe there's stuff happening behind the curtains that we don't know. And usually there is. I think your marketing idea is probably sound. (laughs) Like, they're, they're able to go, government, still no movement. We could have done this. Uh, but we're not. <laughs> Listen, speaking of uh, marketing, uh, with the, and and he is, uh, as well as being a designer, Johnny Ive uh, has left Apple. What, yeah, what, what uh, do you think? I tell you, a classic example of no story ever breaks on a Friday. You know, I think we went live <laughs> with the show. Yeah, like hours, a mere hours later, Johnny Ive was leaving Apple. I mean, can, can anything, you know, more seismic happen in technology? Um, I, if you go, you've, you're a fan of Apple hardware. Uh, as opposed to the software. So you probably have a few benchmarks along the way that made you go, they've nailed it. Uh, I, well, I thought the uh, the first iPod was definitely just mm. something completely different because there were loads of iP- uh, MP3 players before that and they were all ugly things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then they came out and they made this beautiful thing and it was really simple. Um, and then they say the iPhone... I suppose maybe the iPhone 4S, not the original iPhone, I don't think. Mm. Um, but I think it's interesting that, uh, well, I think Johnny Ives, without a doubt, uh, turned Apple around. Himself and Steve Jobs were both key to the success of that company. Yeah, because well, Steve- he, he thought differently, do you know what I mean? With the iMacs yeah. and the color and, and, and the different shape and everything of them. That was, uh, that was an Apple slogan for, for years, wasn't it? Think differently. Um, yeah, just looking at the uh, iPod as a, a classic example. I mean, before that, he did the G3 uh, iMac, which is very much a proof of concept that, you know, you, you can get back on, on track if you've got good design. Uh, now, unfortunately, it, it also gave us the hockey puck mouse, but we'll not talk about that. But in 2001, uh, I remember, well, 2003, 2004, because I, I hadn't had a, an iPad, an iPod around then. I, I got in around the fifth generation iPod, which is a fantastic piece of gear, still use it. Um, the uh, iPod in 2001, um, some of the competitors out there, Creative, iRiver, um, what was the the really good one that was really expensive? It, w- it was like a fully featured media player. Um, Arcos, Arcos. Uh, all these other brands were, were playing and doing really, really well, but it, they didn't break into the mainstream. They still look complicated, even though they were far, far better spec'd than the iPod. The iPod, the iPod just came along and went, we play music. If you want to manage your music, we link it to iTunes. That's it. You know, I think that's no, probably what the... Well, I mean, linking it to iTunes was definitely a, a masterstroke for the iPod because the two worked hand in hand, which beforehand mm. you weren't really getting. And then yeah. I also think, because I had one of the creative players, um, and I'm, just, yes. I'm smiling now just thinking on a design point of view, which was what Johnny Ives did. Um, creative made their MP3 player, which was excellent, looked like a portable CD player. Mm. 
And it's kind of like, I can understand the thinking because you want to give people something they're comfortable with. <laughs> but at the same time, why? <laughs> give them something <laughs> brand new that, that fits easier into your pocket and, da, 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 and all those uh, kind of good things. So uh, so yeah. no, I, I think that was definitely one of the pivotal moments. Uh, the, oh, and do you, do you remember the, the ultimate, the Microsoft Zune? There was a fall from grace. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I had one of those as well, and it was a nice unit. Yeah. But it was a me too. Yeah. You yeah. Know, that, that was the thing. What, what other contributions do you think Johnny Ives made to Apple? Uh, okay. Well, I mean, you've mentioned the iPhone. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no denying it. I mean, it was a game changing product. Again, it stole the wind from Microsoft's sales in mobile. I mean, Microsoft looked at mobile as a business space. Um, where you're looking at things like email management, um, for something to come along with a, a capacitive touchscreen with a small um, small keypad, um, that was just anathema. I remember Steve Ballmer laughing at the iPhone because it wasn't a good business machine. We all know better now. I mean, the iPhone set the tone. Uh, granted, it's not the biggest uh, the biggest player in the market, but it is you know it, it is the trendsetter. So, yep, you you have to give the iPhone props. I said I agree with you. The iPhone four is the most attractive iPhone ever made. Um, but I want to look at the next sort of game changing device that they had, which is two thousand and eight. iPhone was two thousand seven. Uh, the MacBook Air, of which you own. Mm. Actually, you're right. So, do you, I mean, would you consider that one of the more attractive laptops you've ever owned? Uh, yes. But it go. wasn't revolutionary because it looked like a, like an anorexic version of other MacBooks. Yeah, yeah. It was just amazing that they were able to get it down. That Now, if they had come out and went, do you know what? We're going to get into laptops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here it yeah. is. That would be a wow moment. Uh, but yeah. because it was kind of a slimmed down uh, version of the uh, the MacBook, I don't think it was like quite, uh, kind of as well. But it, it is. I mean, it, it is a great laptop. And actually, do you know what? That's one thing that uh, I don't think a lot of people know about Johnny Ive was that not only did he design the hardware, but he was very influential in designing the software. Yeah, I mean, Craig Federini has sort of taken over now as the um, uh, as the the head of that sort of department uh, within Apple. He's he's become the guy. But yeah, John and I've uh, has always been in the background. Here's here's a classic example of great branding: the um, iPad. Uh, the, sorry, Apple's in general uh, earplugs. Oh, I hate them. They're white. And they they just became shorthand for digital music. No, they came shorthand for I own an Apple player, you're a Muppet. <laughs> That's what they came shorthand <laughs> for. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Listen, do you think that uh, Apple are going to hurt now that uh, Johnny Ives is, is going off and uh, has set up his own company? He says he's going to continue working with Apple and they will probably be, be one of his major clients. But do you think this is really going to hurt Apple in the long run? I don't think so. I think I think I was far too smart. I mean, he set up a design consultancy. Apple, let's face it, are going to be his main client and he just wants to be his own boss. Personally, that's what I think is going on. Mm. Um, prove me wrong. I reckon you're right as well there. And I think, you know, kind of I think everybody has something amazing to give to the world. I mm. think Johnny may have given his. Well, and, and many times over. Many, many times over. God bless you, Johnny Ive. All right, listen, that's our news for this week. Thanks a lot. 
This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's techcentral.ie. We are awash with data these days, but how much do we know about the uses that it can be put to beyond advertising? Tracy Brown is the director of Sense About Science, a charity that aims to make science accessible to everyone. She was in Ireland last week to launch a report called Ask for Evidence, which challenges everyone to ask more about where data came from, the assumptions that we make about it, and how certain we are that the information we choose to believe holds up to the scrutiny. She joined Niall Kitson on the telephone to tell us more. One of the big problems that we see when it comes to data is this constant conversation over quality. So we know that there are masses of data being produced every day and it's being used by services like Google, like Facebook. Uh, In some parts of the world, it's used by government to, to track people. But to what extent do you think people recognize not just the value of data, but the quality of data that they're interacting with? Well, I think now we've got lots of different attitudes to data, depending on who's collecting it and how aware we are of it. But there's so much that's going on that people don't even realize is happening. So, for example, the way that we decide how to allocate resources in societies, in most societies now, um, there's there's a a strong data element to those decision-making process. So you've got computer-assisted learning going on um, and algorithms being applied using the data of how people have behaved in the the past and and what those outcomes have been. So it's happening in education, it's happening in transport, in justice, the way that we uh, predict what's going to happen in the economy. We're looking at now possibly with the data that's being gathered uh, rapidly on so many areas, we're looking at possibly within 10 years having real-time economic forecasting. So everything from from the, the weather to to how we bank is uh, is really feeding off a huge amount of data. And it is that predictive quality that's it's fascinating, uh, and it's quite scary at the same time. I mean, yeah, I think it is quite intimidating if you look at you know a large data set and the and the value therein, and you wonder exactly you know how many of these large data sets are out there, and what are what are they gathering about us? To to which extent are they accurate? Well, yes, that's, that was a fundamental thing. When Sense About Science started work putting together the uh, data science, a guide for society, uh, I thought I was across all this sort of stuff. And the fundamental point that we only have past data to predict what goes on in the future, we only have the past to predict the future. <clears throat> of course, we know that. But when we stop and think about it, that means that we're kind of trapped in what the data says about us or people like us. We become really aware of it at certain times. You know, we go to get car insurance and we get frustrated that we're clearly being put in a category. You know, if we're, for example, a manager uh, and then you're grouped in a category of people who spend the day driving up and down the motorway uh, uh, selling stuff uh, as well, which is obviously a higher risk group and you don't want to be part of that group and so you become aware of it at certain times but always everywhere we go everything we buy uh, every time we apply for credit and all those things we we have a certain amount of information uh, trading around with us not just about us but about people who might be like us uh, and that's determining what kind of options we have I think one of the um, one of the areas that people might feel aggrieved is 
the issue of context that yes you are generating certain data points but there might be reasons be they historical be they personal that just don't get carried or represented in the data set so how do you get people to understand that yes you're generating this information but look there are other things that just aren't being recorded here and you know for want of a better expression it's nothing personal but this is an obstacle you might have to encounter Well, this is why more of us, lots of us, have got to get into the habit of asking more questions as a society. Um, You know, when it comes to our individual options where we're trying to get, say, a mortgage or something like that, then then that's a tricky one because, obviously, you know, we're treated as groups rather than individuals a lot in those situations. But what we need to do is start asking whether the algorithms that are being applied, whether the way that data science is being used is uh, is accountable enough you know is is it the case that the model is learning uh, is it actually accurate how accurate is it what kind of tests were done on it when you think about maybe make a comparison with how we feel about say the medical world you know when somebody is prescribed a drug we expect there to have been a, a clinical trial on that drug we expect it to have met certain standards we think there's a regulator in place who is going to uh, make sure that that drug isn't licensed unless it's proven itself to be better than what was going on before um, and you know, so that you know, we were looking at a, a tr- better treatment and you assume all of that is happening and indeed it does happen that is it's not a fail-safe system but it is a, a big system that's in place but when it comes to all these other uses of data we seem to sort of drop that and in some cases I think we also become a bit starstruck so, you know, when Mark Zuckerberg announces that uh, uh, using Facebook data, we're going to learn a lot about uh, how to treat disease over the next 20 years, uh, that gets reported rather uncritically by comparison with uh, uh, reports of new drugs and so on. So I think we need to turn our critical lens as a society on how these uh, these systems around data use uh, uh, function, what kind of standards are in place. And, and where is this accountable? If we're rolling out something that's deciding whether prisoners uh, uh, should be released on day release or not, whether they're a high risk or not, uh, how are we checking that that's actually selecting the right people to do that for? How are we kind of coming, looping back around? And what kind of data was it based on in the first place? Was it data that could be relied upon? Is it perhaps data that has prejudice within it that uh, is then systematizing that prejudice? So we need to learn to ask those questions. Where is this coming from? You know, what are the assumptions that are being made? And can it bear the weight that we're trying to put on it to make decisions? I think the example you alluded to there of the medical um, field is particularly pertinent uh, in the era of you know the, the anti-vax movement where on one side we have this wealth of experience and uh, procedure and you know um, vetting market testing uh, government certification on one end which is incredibly uh, rigorous but on the other we have this you know paranoia that's basically you know rooted in myth that dr- drugs and vaccinations are particularly harmful or bad for you so um, how do you sort of combat this sort of element? Or do you think it's, it's interesting that on one end we have so much competence and on the other we just mm. have this lack of willingness to learn? Mm. I think there are a number of things going on there. You know, Sense About Science has worked at the sharp end of uh, the interface between uh, science and evidence and, and the public for, for a long time. And 
one of the things I've learned is that kind of when, when groups butt up against each other like that, you don't really get very far. But where you do get further is, is looking at the desire that many people have to turn, is, is to turn some critical questioning on things they're doing. And not surprisingly, people want to question critically things like giving medication to their children. And that's fair enough. And I think we should always say that's fair enough. That's actually a good impulse that people have. But the crucial bit is, are we arming ourselves with the right questions? So it's very easy to fuel questions with a kind of um, cynical, you know, sort of conspiracy theory. It's very easy to make conspiracy theories, in fact. Um, but actually, those questions don't necessarily take us to the heart of how reliable something is. It's a bit of a false lead. People who put, to put up conspiracy theories are, are not held to any standards of evidence themselves, uh, and they should be. So that, that's, not, that's not a good way of us pursuing that desire to have critical questioning. But I think it's fine to have critical questions. We certainly should ask what are the standards, you know, if we're going to roll out a vaccine, what are the standards that that should meet and do they meet them? And we should be constantly reviewing those. And there are times when uh, things fall short, even in the medical field as well. Uh, but that's because we find that out, not because people have made conspiracy theories, but we find it out because uh, medics do systematic reviews. Uh, and discover, for example, with the, the, um, uh, the flu vaccine and, and others uh, that are a bit more controversial, uh, medics have uh, found uh, sort of gaps and things that need to be sorted out there by doing a systematic review of the literature rather than uh, by making a conspiracy theory. So I think it's fine to ask questions, but the, there are some that take us down a critical path that really enable us to make things better. And there are some that just simply take us down the path of superstition and that doesn't help us any at all. Uh, but it's that desire for critical questioning that I would really like to fuel with giving people the right questions to ask. So we really genuinely hold people to account rather than just retreating to a conspiracy. So to look at things from the other side of the of the uh, mirror, if you will, or the other um, the other side of the, the spectrum. We have a, a, a very impressive body of scientists out there who are very, very good at what they do, but might necessarily be interested in communicating their skills to the public because, you know, what they have is rooted in nuance that very it's not easily conveyed to people. Or perhaps, you know, somebody wants to say, well, look, my job is to secure grants so I can keep working. It's not to talk yeah. to the public. Um, how do you sell the idea that having strong communication skills is vital for the continuation of public interest in the sciences, but also for the betterment of science in general? Well, now there are several questions there. I find this so frustrating because what happens is there's a big celebration at the moment of, of public dialogue and communication and then um, and then people really do retreat from it and it's you know there's all these academics producing slides and graphs about how to talk to the public now as well you know, it's become a kind of uh, profession and it's just really simple you know you speak in human and you don't speak in academic language and you don't cover everything with 30 caveats you just speak in the same way as you speak when you have a row with your brother-in-law at Christmas about something that you do at work. That's how you speak to the public and you learn by doing. And I find that on the one hand, you know, there's still this real reluctance and the covering everything in caveats is so self-referential because really it's all about trying to cover your own back when you do something like that. You're imagining that your peers are listening to you and treating it like it's a publication in a 
peer-reviewed journal instead of really thinking about what is it that this person needs. And we've recently done some work with uh, with parents of children undergoing heart surgery, and that's a very difficult and controversial area, so particularly in the UK where we have a history there of the medical profession and, and government not communicating well about surgical outcomes. And what we found was that the scientists really wanted to sort of put all the uh, caveats in about the predicted range and, and so on with the, with the surgical outcomes. But the parents just said, no, just tell me, tell me straight. Just tell me the first answer is how much do I need to worry about this? And then give me the rest of it and let me see that I can follow your chain of reasoning back to where it comes from. But I first want a clear answer. They weren't wanting a yes or no answer or something naff. They were just wanting uh, the information to come at a level that, you know, answered their actual question and not 30 imagined criticisms that uh, uh, somebody in the, in the particular medical field you work in would have. And I think that's the, that's the thing we need to encourage scientists to do, try and spend some time thinking about what is the perspective of the people I'm speaking to? You know, if, if you're a stem cell researcher and you're publishing something in multiple cirrhosis, think about the fact that those people who are looking for a breakthrough have had 10 announcements of stem cell breakthroughs and none of them seem to have gone anywhere. So maybe start there in your conversation with the public. Start why, you know, with why that didn't uh, come to anything in the past and why you now think you've solved that problem. Think about what it is that people really need to know from you. And I think that's, that's the thing that the, the scientific community would do well to, to study a bit more, to think a bit more about the conversation that's happening around their area of research and that they're participating in that as a, as a, a, a fellow citizen having a conversation. That would be a good start, I think. Um, and there does need to be more support. I think institutions do need to support the time that academics sometimes put into um, going out and speaking to people that researchers do with the outreach and so on, especially when it's on a controversial issue. You mentioned vaccines earlier. It's interesting to me that that still is a really painful place. People still feel very, um, researchers still feel very exposed and isolated when they try to uh, help parents to, to address their questions. And I think we need much more institutional support. And that was the director of Sensibet Science, Tracy Brown. If you want to find out more about the Ask for Evidence report, you can visit the website, which is askforevidence.org. That's about it for our show for this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates and more at techcentral.ie. And, of course, you have our show every week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RT Radio 1 Extra. I'm off for Lemsip. Uh, Niall is already gallivanting off for the weekend. You have a good one. We'll talk to you next week. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.